So some questions, starting with questions related to, is the volume okay? Starting with questions related to delusion and selfing primarily. Is it a delusion that we are separate people? For instance, when I have conflict, and I'm paraphrasing here, when I have conflict with a loved one, can wisdom about the assumption that we're separate be helpful? I guess what I would say is that there's a, a, a subtle kind of understanding about this that you know that the sense of of separation often does come from a sense of, s- of self, the creation of an I or a me, and the creation of other can kind of come as two sides of a coin. So there is a separation there. And the notion of I separates me from the notion of other. And yet the, the separation, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to articulate this. The separation, I think, is more about a sense of, um, or this separation that's problematic, I would say, is, is about this sense of kind of creating a, a, a solidity around self, a reification or a, a, a landing in something that's stable and going through time in some way. And so we have this sense of, of an I that is here now, and the same I was here yesterday and the day before, and the same I will be here tomorrow and the next day. That sense of, a, of an I traveling through space and time. Something, something, something traveling through space and time. And therefore there is also a some you traveling through space and time. And so the, uh, and yet the the understanding of that that misunderstanding about the sense of self is um, is is more that what we think of as something stable traveling through space and time is not what it seems to be. It is a process, a flow, a, an, an ongoing kind of creation, construction that's happening, this construction that's coming into being and falling apart, coming into being and falling apart. There's, there's a constructing happening here. And there's no thing traveling through space and time. Every moment is new. Not only the experience, but the processes meeting experience are new. And so we might, we might um, you know, reflect on kind of the classic analogy of the rainbow in terms of understanding something of this process nature 
when we reflect on what a rainbow is, there's water particles in the air. There's the position of the sun with respect to those water particles. And there's the position of the observer. And all three of those kind of have to be in a particular orientation for one to see a rainbow, for the observer to experience the rainbow, to see the rainbow. And so there is, there is the, it's not that the rainbow doesn't exist, but it isn't an independent thing. It exists based on the conditions of the light, the water, and the observer. Any one of those pieces different, the rainbow isn't there. Joseph gave a great analogy of this, using the rainbow analogy, but it was so vivid for me. It was so helpful. He, he, he said he was on, um, I think it was on the big island, on Hawaii. And there's a lot of lava tubes in, in Hawaii. And the, the waves, you know, the water comes through the lava tubes and then comes up and there's blowholes, you know, there's these blowholes that this, the water goes up into the air and then kind of tumbles down again. So you've got that image of the, like as the waves come in, the water goes up, you know, splashes up through these blowholes. And he happened to be standing in a place where every time water spray came up through one particular blowhole, there was a rainbow. The rainbow would appear and then vanish. And then another uh, water another wave would come and the rainbow would appear and vanish. Each of those rainbows is separate in some way. It's not that they're the same rainbow. They're the, the, and yet the rainbow is based on similar conditions each time. It's similar it's, but it's, it's process, it's conditions. The waves come in, it's different water every time. Different light every time. And so there's a way in which, you know, if we, if we reflect on that kind of analogy of, of the rainbow, that, the, that each rainbow is its own thing. And so there is a way in which this rainbow this Andrea is different from any one of you separate processes at work. And so we are separate in a way. It's not like, it's not like my, my, um, my thoughts are directly experienced by you. So there's there there is a s- there there are separate processes at work, and so I wouldn't exactly say that we are not separate people, but I also wouldn't say that we are separate people because we condition each other the conditions of my words, the conditions of how somebody receives them, how we relate to each other. I mean, all, all of how we are and who we are, the conditioned nature of who we are is kind of brought to us by our families, our cultures, our, our conditioning. And so we are not separate in that way, in that we condition each other. And so it's kind of, I just want to kind of point to that, that, you know, we are neither separate nor not separate. 
Or maybe we are both separate and not separate. I'm not sure. And in this understanding of the understanding of, I would say, um, the process nature of our experience that um, I am not what I might think I am, a being traveling through space and time, but understanding this conditioned being that my that 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 what is the responses that are arising here are conditioned based on past experience present conditions even ideas of future can condition the present thoughts about the future can condition the present and so you know all of this is under understanding that and seeing, I would say also seeing the way, not understanding that, that the confusion about that leads to suffering. And we are confused about that. Um, that we, th- and think that we are some separate and, you know, abiding entity Essentially, that, that sense of I being someone traveling through space and time comes with a lot of beliefs and delusions about needing to protect, defend that I that exists, thinking we need to kind of create something around that. And so as we see that sense of, s- of solidity around I, that belief, I am and understand the suffering that it creates. We recognize through understanding it in our own experience that this is not unique to us. It's like our heart can just break because we understand, wow, there's so much suffering that happens in this being from this confusion And there are seven billion people on the planet doing the same thing. No wonder it's so hard. No wonder it's so painful. No wonder there's so much confusion that we're bumping up against each other and trying to protect, defend our turf and protect, defend our property and protect, defend our sense of who we are try to convince other people to have the same view of who we are as we do. I mean, this this understanding of the suffering that comes from clinging to this sense of identity, this is what can help us when we're in conflict with others. This understanding that my choices, my beliefs, my actions, my feelings are conditioned. And so in that way, they're not independent. Maybe we could say they're not separate from the vast chain of, you know, sometimes Gil talks about the, you know, the kind of amazement in recognizing that this moment, this thought that's arising in this being, in this split second, the entire conditioning of the history of the universe came together in this moment, and that thought is the result. And so there's, it's not separate from, from that. So to me, it's the understanding of the, the conditioning, the conditioned nature of our experience, the uh, that we that, that that supports this uh, kind of releasing around conflict.
No, there was something else, but it's not there. <laughs> Is a thought that has I, me, mine in it a deluded thought? Such as, I love this practice. I love my grandchildren or my grandchildren love me. Not necessarily, but most likely. <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> um, when we think, I would say, you know, many thoughts contain delusion because we are thinking in concepts and believing those concepts in some form. That's where the delusion would enter into the thought is the belief in the thoughts as some kind of reality. or representing some kind of reality. There's a, a place in the suttas where the Buddha says something along the lines, I, I didn't find the sutta, but I'll see if I can find it, something along the lines of In referring to himself, he called himself the Tathagata, one, the one thus gone. And he said when the Tathagata, the Tathagata uses concepts to communicate, basically, but does not misapprehend the nature of those concepts. We Concepts, concepts, even the concept of I, it's just another concept. Concepts are useful uh, functions of our mind. They, they kind of serve as shortcuts for our for our mind. We, um, we have learned through our lives, like this room consists of, you know, walls and chairs and floor and zabutans and zafus and we have learned the concepts of those and you know initially as we go through life you know meeting experience we don't know what things are as what you know as babies they're they're just kind of meeting things for the first time but pretty quickly our minds are designed to understand things that we've seen multiple times things that you know, happen, and then we, we not only get the perception about those, but a concept, an idea about those things. And, and those, those concepts are useful, that they're like a shortcut. Like I don't have to walk in here and figure out that you're people. It happens like that. I don't have to look out there and go, Oh yeah, that's a chair, right? Oh yeah, we sit in those. And that's a bell, right? That that rings when I strike it. We d I don't have to figure that out. It's there. It's 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 a, a useful part of our minds. We probably would not be able to walk through life without having concepts. 
but there's a a misunderstanding or a misapprehension that you know essentially what we are experiencing kind of like i i talked about last night that that hovering number in the stream of letters and that the 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 number that was hovering was no longer there any more than any of the letters were there but the mind had created the concept and held on to it so that it could work with it it could recognize it and so you know for me i think that experiment was so powerful because it was so clear that that was mind created, that hovering number, the kind of recognition of how, how easy it was to believe that it was actually staying there. You know, that, 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 that the mind attributed, so, the mind would so easily attribute some reality to that number hovering there. And I knew it wasn't. So very similarly with our navigating the world, there's a way, I mean, the, the way we, the, the concepts are, are constructions of our mind. And we are actually, when we meet the world, we are only meeting all the experience, everything that we experience, the only things that we experience are constructs of our mind. We don't actually experience chair as a real thing, as a real entity. It is a construct in the mind. And so we are navigating the world through concepts And because of that, because what we're, how we're nav- that we're navigating the world through concepts, very easy for delusion to kind of obscure or drag in beliefs, views, ideas, opinions about concepts. And then we're not simply meeting the world through the concept of, the simple concept of, for instance, chair, but we're meeting it through our ideas about what a good chair is, or what a beautiful chair is, something like that, where we're we're bringing our views and opinions to that concept. And we are unable to distinguish and of the difference between the arising of a concept and our belief that it is that it is like a reality and so this is this is just a little taste of, m- of my understanding of what the buddha means when he says I, uh, the buddha uses concepts but doesn't misapprehend them our language is is entirely concept. That's how we communicate with each other. And we can do a pretty good job of it. We can, we can communicate with each other. And so saying something like, I love this practice, has a communicating quality to it. It evokes something this being in being touched by the Dharma experiences the quality of metta. That's what that communicates maybe in the more kind of in in a way that might take the eye out of it. This being, hearing the Dharma, engaging in the Dharma, 
experiences metta. And yet, you know, that's not the way we talk. So, you're welcome to use the language, I, or me, or mine. And yet recognize there's often an attribution of that solidity there when we do use that language. And when we think in those terms, when we think about I or me or mine, also very often we, we are thinking in terms of this, what we think of as this being traveling through space and time. And that is misapprehending the concept and that is delusion. So hopefully that explains my short answer of not necessarily, but probably. (laughs) Is the sense of self the most predominant and root delusion in human experience? The short answer here is, I don't know. I reflected on this a little bit and, you know, when the Buddha spoke about the core delusions that are uprooted, there are three of them, three basic understandings that we understand impermanent all experience is impermanent. All, all uh, sankharas are impermanent. All constructs, all arisings are impermanent. All uh, sankharas, all formations, essentially, that word means, are unreliable. And then difference in the third one, all experience is not self. Slightly different framing of that third one. My understanding of that different framing is uh, There's a way in which the Buddha speaks of freedom, the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion, as having a kind of permanence and a kind of reliability. I don't know quite how to interpret that piece. It's very tempting to create a thing out of Nibbana there, create something permanent. But my my intuition is that there's a nowhere to land. That understanding of nowhere to land is so deeply peaceful. That that's a stable kind of happiness. But it doesn't come from landing on anything. It's an endless letting go. That's my sense of it. And yet he did say that that nibbana, that cooling, another way to translate nibbana, cooling, or releasing perhaps, that releasing is not self. And so he spoke of those three. And there are times when the deep understanding of freedom is expressed in terms of impermanence, one understands everything that arises passes away. 
Sometimes it's expressed in terms of impermanence, or I mean unreliability. There's a place where the teaching says something like, one understands that it's only suffering that's arising and only suffering that's ceasing. And there are times when that deep understanding is framed in terms of not-self. One understands this is not me, this is not mine, this is not who I am. And there are ways in which the Buddha points to sometimes understanding one leads to the understanding of another. Like in one time he talked to his son, he said, I think I mentioned this the other day, cultivate the perception of impermanence. That will support the perception of not-self. I think it's interesting that when the Buddha spoke about these three, when he spoke about impermanent, unreliable, not-self, It's often talked about in terms of being characteristic of experience. This is this is a characteristic of all a characteristic of all experience. It's impermanent. It's unreliable. But that kind of imputes a kind of a thingness in a way to experience. It's like it's 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 attaching something to experience and saying that is impermanent. That is unreliable. But this word characteristic, and this the, the word in Pali is, is lakana, and it's, it's used in the, t- t- the Theravada tradition a lot, especially in Burma. We're, talk, we're taught in Burma a lot about notice the specific characteristics of experience, and that will lead you to noticing the general characteristics of experience. In a way, this morning I was pointing to in noticing the nature of your states of mind. That's kind of noticing the, the kind of the spe- specific characteristic. What are the characteristics of anger? And what are the job descriptions of anger? What are the job descriptions of love? It's kind of in that terrain of, of characteristic. And this is a very in the Theravadan Burmese tradition, this is a big pointing in practice, is to see the characteristics of experience. And yet that word, uh, lakana, characteristic, um, Gil pointed out, and actually no, Tanjef, Tanjef pointed out, although Gil pointed out to me that the place I said, but it's there. And he said, that's in the title of the sutta. So there's one place where it is used in in the Samyutta Nikaya. There's a famous sutta called the Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristic of not-self. I said, there, there it is. And Gil said, those titles were added a lot later. (laughs) And, And he said, you look in that sutta, The word lakana is never used in that sutta. So the Buddha didn't refer to, see the characteristic of impermanence. He used cultivate the perception of impermanent, unreliable, not-self. This, I think, really deeply points to something very fundamental and uh, powerful about how the Buddha taught that he's not pointing to an external reality. He's not saying, see what's out there. See the characteristics of what's out there. He's saying, notice how you're perceiving. Everything he points to is seeing how our experience is made, is constructed. And he said, these perceptions, if we explore our experience orienting through these perceptions of impermanent, unreliable, not-self, that will transform the mind. It will lead to the release of clinging. It will lead to freedom, happiness, ease, peace. 
And that's his interest, of course, to take us to release, to freedom. And so these three, to me, I, I don't know whether any one of them is primary or deeper somehow than the others. There's, there's one other teaching where that these three are sometimes pointed to as being the doors of freedom, the doors of liberation. And in the, in the, I think in the Zen tradition or there, well, I don't know where this is. They're, they're called like the Dharma do- doors of the signless, the wishless, and the deathless. And each of those are kind of connected to each of these, the signless, connected to the insight into impermanence, the wishless being connected to the insight into unreliability, the deathless being connected to the insight into not-self. But the understanding is that we can enter into that and go through those three doors of liberation. Like the, under, the deep understanding of any one of those, it's kind of my way of thinking about it, the deep understanding of any one of those takes us to the understanding of all of them, in a way. And so, it's not clear to me what the Buddha would have said about this, because I don't think he talked about the three, he, he talked about these three insights, but he didn't talk, I don't know of any place he talked about these three doors of freedom like that. One piece around not-self that occurred to me to offer. So I wrote myself a question. So I would answer it for you. Um, is um, you know the the teaching on not self is often extremely hard to take in to our mind. It is so counterintuitive. Our deep intuition says, no, I'm here. This is me. And um, our tendency can be, I see, I see, I saw this happen with myself and I see it happen with, with others, hearing this teaching of not-self to try to figure out like, well, gosh, it really feels like there's a me here. How can I see that it's not me, something like that. How can I see the not-self here? And as I, I think I mentioned yesterday, you know, that really the exploration is around just seeing what we are experiencing, not trying to kind of apply the idea of not-self, but well, what this feels like I, me, or this feels like I, me, or mine. So, what is that experience? With the kind of background understanding of possibility of maybe that this is different than I think it is. But let's see. And with that curiosity, I, I mentioned that that come and see. You know, ehipasiko, check out the sense of self. What is it? What is it really? What is this sense of self? But but not like trying to find not-self in it. Just that the mindfulness and uh, wisdom meeting that experience begins to show it is not what we think it is. And there's a teaching uh, that I love that to me kind of points to this. You know, you don't have to even pick up and believe this teaching of not-self. The Buddha offers a very succinct teaching to uh, one wanderer who comes to him and asks for the teachings in brief, the, the wanderer Bahia. He comes to the Buddha and says, please teach me your teachings. And after three requests, the Buddha agrees, although it's a quick one because he's on alms round. He's going for his meal, so it's a 
pretty short teaching. And it starts with the very simple, check out your experience, Bahia. He said, this is how you should train yourself. In the seen is only the seen. In the heard is only the heard. In the sensed is only the sensed. In the cognized is only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. So that's his, his first part of the, the little teaching. It's, you know, look at your experience. It's, it's a pointing to that we tend to apply concepts to what we see. It's, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of a pointing to what actually is the scene? And where are the concepts coming in? And so can, can there be kind of a, a bare attention to our experience where we are just with the seeing, with the hearing, with the sensing, and with the cognizing meaning that when we notice seeing flower, we understand flower is a concept. It's cognized. In the cognized is only the cognized. So we understand con- uh, concept in this way that I was saying the, the Buddha does not misapprehend concept. My understanding is that the Buddha still had concepts arising in his mind. He seemed to have concepts. He, he communicated a lot of concepts. So he still had concepts arising, but he didn't misunderstand them. He didn't misapprehend them. He understood concepts as concepts, thoughts as thoughts, Feelings as feelings, perceptions as perceptions. The feeling of love is the feeling of love. My understanding is that the Buddha did not experience anger, any form of greed, aversion, or delusion, but that he would have experienced the Brahma-viharas. But he would understand them as arisings in the mind. That's my, my sense of what that means. And the seen is only the seen, heard only the heard, the sensed only the sensed, the cognized only the cognized. Understanding experience as experience happening in the present moment. So that's the pointing, that's the teaching. And that's what we're doing here, really. That's the encouragement, very much the encouragement. Relax, recognize awareness, what's being received. What is that being received? Beginning to kind of tease apart and distinguish the seeing from the concept, the perception of seeing. Beginning to be able to recognize the distinction between a, a, a pain in the knee and an aversion to that pain. They're different things. So we understand pain is arising. The unpleasant body sensation is arising. Mental formation arising along with that aversion arising. This is our training, this is, this, and this is what he pointed to for Bahia. This is your training. And then he went on, he said, When for you, in the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard, in the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized in the, is only the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that when there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, there is neither here, nor yonder, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And so essentially, to me, this points to the understanding of not-self as an insight that falls out of the practice of meeting experience directly. You didn't, you know, it's, 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 it's like it, it is a, it's a natural unfolding that, that insight. It's like, you know, it's almost like we don't have to believe it. And yet, I think we have to hold the idea of self 
with some lightness. <laughs> you know, the, it sure feels like self, but somebody I really respect says it's something else, so I'm willing to check it out. So, in that case, in his teaching to Bahia, he didn't start with not-self. He didn't say, understand not-self and then try to see your experience. So just see if you can meet experiences like more and more carefully. See if you can meet experience just as it is. As that unfolds, the understanding of not-self reveals itself. You mentioned loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity, as concepts. Is wisdom a concept? Are Buddha, Dharma, Sangha concepts? It's possible I said this, but I think what I meant to say, and hope I said, was that they are constructs. They are also concepts. I mean, we make concepts out of them. But there is an experience of an arising of love, of compassion, of equanimity, wisdom arising. And yet those are, those are conditioned arisings. That's, that's what I think I was pointing to, what I think has been, um, but it's possible I said the word concepts accidentally. Um, that they are constructs of, that they are constructed they, they are, it's not like they are kind of the ground of being which is revealed when hindrances fall away. They are also arisings. They have a forming nature. They, they f- are formed. They form. So they have this constructing and constructed nature to them. And yet, we do create concepts out of them. And this is an important thing to recognize. What is the difference between the experience of the arising of metta which has a very vibrant, lively, it's, 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 it's not static, it's, it's got a motion to it. Let's see a difference between that. What is the difference between the experience and the idea of loving kindness? Because not only do we apply concepts to things in the world, We apply concepts to our emotions, our moods, our states, whatever goes on in our mind. And that, in a way, kind of also reifies them. It creates a thing out of them. Oh, this is love. Or, oh, this is what mindfulness is. This is the experience of concentration. We create a concept out of it. And then we are potentially unable to recognize a, an, an arising of a different rainbow of concentration, a different, a different construction of concentration that has a different quality to it because of the idea where we're looking for the concept rather than opening to the experience and recognizing the experience. And so this, this play between concept and experience, it's a powerful place where delusion creeps in.
in the attribution, like, like that idea of this. Is, I know what concentration is, and concentration feels like this. On one retreat, um, this form of retreat, encouraging people in just this same way, um, and um, I've been encouraging you, and one, um, one person um, talked about, you know, just, just the struggle that they were having with uh, the practice. And, and, and both of us, I was teaching with another teaching, both of us were just saying, just, just notice what's obvious. You know, just stay with what's obvious. Just easy. Really keep it simple and easy. And at some point, they decided to just do that. And like, okay, yep, okay, I'm just noticing moisture and seeing. And, and then at some point, that person said, Wow, there's all kinds of interesting sensations happening. And if I didn't know better, I'd say I was concentrated. Wait a minute. This is concentration. So the, you know, the idea, concentration comes from working really hard, from focusing on something, almost missing that this was concentration. There was a stability of awareness. So the concepts that we have about not only things in the world, but things going on, experiences going on in our mind, can limit us. So really useful to recognize concept as concept. I think that's enough. So let's just sit together for a few minutes. <coughs> 